You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part six in the life of Christopher Columbus. Last time, we left Columbus in Spain after the conclusion of his third voyage. The expedition had begun with Columbus's discovery of South America, a key moment in the exploration of the New World. Columbus's landing on the northern coast of the continent opened up in an entirely new arena to Europe, and within a year of reporting his discovery, other explorers were setting their sights on these new lands. But Columbus's third voyage ended in chaos and disaster when he found himself in a protracted civil war on Hispaniola, the result of Columbus's mismanagement and poor leadership. In response to the complaints about Columbus and his heavy-handed rule, the Spanish crown would send Hispaniola a new governor, Francisco de Bovadilla. Bobadilla would conduct an inquiry into the conduct of Columbus and his brothers, and the results were not pretty. The admiral was shown to have been a harsh ruler, employing whippings, executions, and mutilations to keep the island's populace in line. It had left a lot of disgruntled people. Bobadilla would eventually send Columbus and his brothers back to Spain in chains, stripping them of their wealth and power. Now, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella would eventually forgive Columbus for his failings, but he was done as an administrator. He had been given multiple opportunities as a ruler, and he had failed. But while Christopher Columbus was done as the governor of Hispaniola, he was not done as an explorer. And that, my friends, gets us up to date in our series. The year was 1502. Columbus was 50 years old, ancient in explorer years. He was half-blind and suffered from numerous ailments, including arthritis and malaria. Columbus had kept to an austere life now that he was back in Spain, he lived like a monk, putting on display to the world his piety and humbleness, ironic considering that these were qualities he actually lacked. But he loved to play the martyr, and he was good at it. It was at this time that Columbus would write another book, titled The Book of Prophecies. He did this with the help of a monk, and it was a compilation of apocalyptical religious revelations, things that Columbus felt he actually played a part in. He spoke about finding the Garden of Eden, the need to spread Christianity, and the desire to retake the Holy Land from the Muslims. He goes on to wrap all that he has done as an explorer and as an administrator in a religious cloak, demonstrating how his voyages and deeds were part of God's plan. He also uses this to try and exonerate himself from his failures. The book was Columbus at his most religious and his most weird. But all of that aside, Columbus's true calling was the sea. He was forever planning and plotting and dreaming of his next great voyage, the voyage that would lead him to China 
and would put him back on top in the eyes of his monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella. So he took his grandiose plan to sail once more for Asia to the Spanish crown, and again, he received royal backing for a fourth voyage. However, let us be clear, this would not be a voyage to administer a colony. It was a voyage of discovery. Some historians speculate that the Spanish monarchs granted Columbus this voyage as a way to get him out from under their feet. Better him out at sea than hanging around at court pestering them about other stuff, which is what he did whenever he got the chance. However, it can't be forgotten that Columbus had proven to be a valuable asset. He may have been a disaster as an administrator, but the guy had found places. Cuba, Hispaniola, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, South America, etc., etc. And it made sense that if the king and queen of Spain wanted to uncover more of this new world, well, Columbus was a good guy to do that kind of thing. The goal of Columbus's new expedition was to find Asia, and of course map out any other lands that he happened to come across. But there was an important stipulation to his charter. He had no rights or permission to go to his former colony of Hispaniola. He was to find a route to Asia and steer clear of his old discoveries. Columbus would be given four ships for his fourth expedition by the crown. They were caravels, small and not in the best of shape. The four ships were manned by approximately 140 men. For this expedition, Columbus brought with him his 13-year-old son, Ferdinand. This is significant because later in life, Ferdinand would write a biography of his father, including the details of this fourth voyage. And while Ferdinand wrote to defend his father, his work is an outstanding first-hand source of this venture. The fleet departed from Cadiz, Spain on May 11, 1502. The flagship was called Santa Maria, also known as La Capitana. The other ships were Gallega, Vizcaena, and Santiago. The latter was also known as Bermuda. Diego Tristan would serve as the captain of the flagship, while Francisco Poros would be the captain of Santiago. However, the real boss on Santiago was Bartholomew Columbus, who would play a key role on this next voyage. As for the other ships, Pedro de Terreros, a diehard Columbus loyalist, would captain Gallega. Vizcaena, the fleet's smallest ship, was captained by Bartholomew Fieschi, who was Genoese. The fleet first headed south to the city of Asala, on the northwest tip of the Atlantic coast of Morocco. King Ferdinand had asked Columbus to go there and help the Portuguese, who were besieged by the Moors. The move was done by Philip as a way to help repair frayed relations between the two nations. By the time the fleet reached Asala, the siege had been lifted, and Columbus and his fleet were welcomed warmly by the Portuguese. After hanging out and doing a little diplomacy, Columbus would continue on, heading toward the Canary Islands. The four ships would reach Grand Canary Island on May 20th, and spend four days taking on wood and water and supplies. Columbus then set sail west, aiming to find his way to the Indies. As he had done three times before, Columbus led his small fleet across the ocean in good order. They landed on the island of Martinique on June 15, 1502. Martinique is a couple of hundred miles north of the South American mainland and just south of Dominica. After taking on supplies, Columbus island hopped northwest as he had done on his second voyage, Dominica, Guadeloupe, Puerto Rico, and finally Hispaniola. Columbus would reach Santo Domingo on June 29th, but that in of itself was a problem. Remember, as part of Columbus's charter, he no longer had any power on these islands, and he was told specifically to not go to the island of Hispaniola. Hispaniola was now in the process of transitioning power, as the old governor, Francisco de Bobadilla, was handing leadership to Nicolas de Ovando. Both of these men hated Columbus, and Columbus hated them right back. But Columbus went anyways. 
The reason was is that he needed to replace one of his ships, which was slow and in poor condition. Columbus hoped to purchase a new vessel for his explorations in Santo Domingo. The Admiral would send an envoy ashore, Captain Pedro de Terreros, explaining the situation to Ovando, who was now in control of the island. Despite his pleas, Columbus would be denied entrance to the port. Ovando was in no mood to help Columbus, who many viewed as a pompous and arrogant foreigner. It can't be stressed how insulting this was to Columbus. Life at sea was dangerous, and it was common courtesy for a port to grant safe haven for any ship in need, even a foreign ship. But here was Columbus, an admiral flying the Spanish flag, being sent away without any sort of accommodation. As I said, it was insulting and humiliating. Now, despite being spurned by Ovando, Columbus sent the governor another message, a warning that a great storm was on the horizon. But Ovando scoffed at Columbus's warning. He did not want or need the admiral's advice. That, however, was a foolish decision, because Columbus knew the Caribbean waters as well as any European, and he sensed a storm was brewing. Now, as this storm nears, I want to take us back to our last episode. Remember, we recounted the fate of two of Columbus's enemies, Francisco de Bobadilla and Francisco Roldan. Both of these men would die in a hurricane that struck their fleet between Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. Well, this is that hurricane. Columbus was there. He saw the storm coming, and he warned everyone about it. But Governor Ovano had ignored those warnings, and he had sent the fleet of 31 ships, perhaps the first treasure fleet to leave the New World, back to Spain. Bobadilla and Roldan on board. Oopsie. Bad move. On July 1st, the great fleet was caught in a hurricane. Between 20 and 30 of the ships would sink. The death toll ranges from 500 to 2,000. So, with the hurricane coming and the safety of the port of Santo Domingo denied, Columbus and his fleet battened down their hatches and prepared to ride out the storm. The hurricane that struck was biblical in nature. As we noted, most of the treasure fleet heading to Spain would sink. Columbus's ships, however, were prepared for the storm, but it still threatened to consume them. The admiral found what he judged to be a safe place along the southern shore of Hispaniola and rode out the squall. Three of the four ships would stay close to the shore and incur minimal damage. A fourth ship was driven out to sea during the storm and would only survive, said Ferdinand Columbus, due to the skills of his uncle, Bartholomew Columbus. So, the four ships would be battered and beaten, but none would be destroyed they would eventually rendezvous on the southern shore of Hispaniola and wait for an opportunity to continue the voyage. Unfortunately for Columbus, this was hurricane season in the Caribbean, and throughout the first two weeks of July, his small fleet would get pummeled by storm after storm, forcing them to wait and bide their time. Finally, in the middle of July, the weather would clear and the fleet would sail toward Jamaica, where they would stop for a short while to take on supplies. Columbus would next head northwest, reaching the western edge of the island of Cuba. Now, this has all been territory that he had covered before. But remember, Columbus's goal was to go into the unknown and find a passage to Asia. So what he did next was something entirely new. Columbus sailed south, and on July 30th, he would reach Guanaja Island, one of the Bay Islands, off the coast of modern-day Honduras. I should say that this is probably a good time to go check out the map I have posted of Columbus's voyage on explorerspodcast.com. It will give you a good visual of the fleet's route. So, here Columbus had found a new land. The people he encountered were not Chinese, but they were different than those people he had found on Cuba and Hispaniola. They had a different language, and more importantly, Columbus recognized that this was a more advanced civilization. The natives that Columbus ran into were likely members of the Mayan civilization, perhaps traders from the Yucatan Peninsula. 
but we should note that these people represented the last gasp of the Mayan world, so it was nothing like it had been hundreds of years earlier. Still, Columbus was encouraged by the sight of these people. He noted their quality watercraft, copper goods, flint knives, and dyed cotton clothing, including fine shawls worn by the women. Also, it is here that Columbus and his men were introduced to the cocoa bean for the first time. It was so valued by the locals, they used the beans as currency. It is, ironically, one of those things, like tobacco, that would prove as valuable as gold or silver. It was a fortune, if they had only had the sense to recognize it. But again, these natives, despite their advanced ways, were not the Chinese, and they had no gold or silver. However, they did have stories, stories of rich civilizations far, far away. Perhaps it was tales of the ancient Mayan cities, or the Aztecs to the north. Or maybe it was the old trick of getting the Europeans to move on from their lives. Anyhow, after a short time, Columbus and his four ships would head south. On August 14th, Columbus would come ashore at Puerto Castilla, near modern-day Trujillo, Honduras. Columbus was on a new continent. Upon their arrival, the Europeans celebrated Mass, the first ever set on the North American mainland. The natives here were cruder or more savage than those that they had encountered on the Bay Islands. The Europeans said that they were cannibals, although they said that about a lot of natives that they ran into during this time. Still, the Spanish traded with the Indians, obtaining food such as chickens, geese, fish, and beans. As with the first encounters on this voyage, these people spoke a different language, making communication difficult. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Columbus would lead his fleet along the Central American coast, which basically goes east-west at this point. But the voyage would be a struggle due to the constant storms. The fleet was treated to rain, thunder, and lightning every day for 84 consecutive days, making progress immensely slow. Ferdinand Columbus would later write that the fleet covered only 200 miles in a 60-day period due to the storms and the winds that blew against them. As I said, the Honduran coast goes east-west, and the fleet followed it east until the coastline turned directly south at what is now the Honduran and Nicaraguan borders. This is Cabo Gracias a Dios, Cape Thank God. The fleet reached Cabo Gracias a Dios on September 12, 1502 and turned south, and here the weather changed thankfully, for the better. The fleet would cover several hundred miles over the next couple of weeks, sailing along the Nicaraguan coast, an area now called the Mosquito Coast. They would reach present-day Costa Rica on September 25th. Two weeks later, Columbus and his ships would reach what is now Limon, where he found a more sophisticated people, as well as a structure that he described as a, quote, wooden palace, end quote. The Spanish also noted that gold was more common here, seeing gold anklets and bracelets and rings on many of the natives. By November 2nd, the fleet would travel another 270 miles, reaching Puerto Bello in Panama. At this point, Columbus was about 200 miles from South America. This area was called Veragua by the Spanish. Now, let's stop and take stock of things for a minute. 
Columbus and his fleet had been at sea for, essentially, six months. As always, he and his men relied on trading with the natives for food and supplies. But finding enough food for 140 men was always a difficult endeavor, and food shortages were common. The men in the fleet were suffering from malaria and malnutrition. The tropical heat was intense and unrelenting. Columbus and his men were, frankly, worn out. They had been working for six straight months, struggling to keep their ships afloat. And this last point is not an exaggeration, and that is because of something that was haunting Columbus's fleet, shipworms. Shipworms are a type of saltwater mollusk that bore into any wood that is immersed in seawater. They are called the termites of the sea. Now, shipworms were always a threat, but they seemed to have been really destructive in the tropical environment of the Caribbean. And Columbus's vessels had been immersed in water for half a year. The result? They were being eaten, slowly and steadily. Also, let us remember why Columbus was here. He was looking for a way to Asia. In fact, it is here that Columbus heard reports of a great body of water to the west. He would never admit that he wasn't in Asia, but he was convinced that he just had to find a strait through this landmass, and China and Japan would be waiting for him. The fleet had tried to explore the larger rivers that they had come across, but the winds and storms had thwarted them in their efforts. Now, Columbus had found some interesting-looking lands here in Central America. He described healthy and prosperous peoples and great rivers, and he noted the increasing presence of gold in the area. But there was no China or Japan or a strait that would lead him to such lands, just more and more jungle, and, much to the fleet's dismay, more storms. So here we find Columbus in the area of what we now call Panama. November and December would find the fleet mostly idle as they struggled with bad weather and unfavorable winds. On November 26th, the fleet, while in harbor, would get into a conflict with the locals, forcing Columbus to fire his artillery at the Indians to chase them off. The fighting happened when some of the fleet's crew slipped ashore, unbeknownst to the admiral, and they were discovered by the natives. What the men were doing isn't exactly known, but it probably had something to do with stealing food, or gold, or molesting the women. No matter, it demonstrates that the fleet's discipline was crumbling. After the encounter, the ships were forced to flee the area and head back up the coast to another safe harbor. So, here was the fleet in a difficult situation. Storms were constant, food was low, the ships were getting eaten, and the men were testing the patience of the locals. And things are only going to get more fun. On December 5th, 1502, the fleet was struck by another hurricane, a storm that would continue for days. One of the ships, Vizcaina, disappeared in the storm, and would, miraculously, be found three days later. The battered and beaten fleet would take to safe harbor on December 17th, resting for several days while the storms persisted. Columbus seems to have taken the weather personally, writing about it as if it were some sort of malevolent force haunting him. It only added to his dour moods. By this point, Columbus seems to have decided that there was no strait to Asia in the area, and began to consider how he could make the voyage profitable. This, of course, meant finding gold. After fighting the winds for several weeks, Columbus would end up at the mouth of the Balin River in Panama on January 6, 1503. Bartholomew Columbus would be given orders by his brother to explore the area. Bartholomew would go up the Balin River, as well as the nearby Veragua River, taking note of the gold that was in the area. The local Indians said it was found in abundance. The explorations produced a meeting with a native cacica named Quibian, or El Quibian, as he was sometimes called. The two sides made an agreement, the cacica giving the Spanish permission to explore his territory. Things seemed to be okay. 
However, there is one characteristic of this area that is important to understand, and that is the massive amount of rain that it receives, both on land and at sea. In late January, the region would be pounded by massive rainstorms, causing the fleet to hunker down. Gallego would be damaged in one of the storms. But the rains also caused the rivers to swell. Thus, the waters on the shore of Panama rose, allowing the Spanish caravels to get near to the mainland and even head upriver. So, in early February, Columbus saw an opportunity. The waters were high, and he and his men could explore the area. But more importantly, he decided that this was a place to build a settlement. There was no more talk of finding a passage to Asia. For this settlement, Columbus selected a spot at the mouth of the Balin River. The outpost, called Santa Maria de Balin, would be under the command of his brother, Bartholomew Columbus. There would be ultimately 10 to 12 crude huts, enough to house about 80 men. By doing this, Columbus was sort of repeating his initial expedition, building a settlement that the locals could bring gold to. It was his way of trying to create a new colony, since he had lost control of the previous lands that he had found. With this new settlement established, Columbus's plan was to return to Spain with three of his four ships, and then he would come back with more men and supplies to further the colonization efforts. One of the caravels in the fleet, Gallega, would be left on the river next to the settlement, holding supplies and valuables. Now, in the next few weeks, some important things occurred. First, once the rain stopped, the rivers began to recede, and the waters along the shore grew more shallow. Columbus and his ships suddenly found themselves trapped, unable to get their shipworm-riddled vessels over the sandbars. Second, the native leader, Quibian, had warned the Spanish to not venture upriver beyond a certain point. He was okay with the Spanish doing a little poking around, but if they went into his territory, that was not cool. And then, when they started building an outpost, the natives got restless. It was one thing for these strange men to visit and trade, it was another to stay. And there is little doubt that the Spanish were antagonizing the natives, stealing food and gold and harassing the women. It was something that almost always seemed to happen. Thus, shortly after the Spanish established their outpost, Quibian began to plot an attack on the outsiders to drive them back into the sea. Quibian would organize his army over the next month or so, but in late March, his plan was uncovered by one of Columbus's most loyal men, Diego Mendez. He quickly reported his findings to Bartholomew Columbus. Upon hearing the news, Bartholomew put together a force of troops and made for the Casica's village. There, the Spanish captured Quibian, plus 50 members of his family, as well as some warriors. The date was March 30th. Unfortunately for the Spanish, Quibian would escape shortly thereafter, but the other prisoners remained. And with 50 or so hostages in his possession, Bartholomew Columbus doubted Quibian would attack the settlement. So, with the outpost secure, in early April, Christopher Columbus decided it was time to leave the area. The waters had risen, and he was able to get three of his ships over the sandbars and out to sea. The fleet's fourth ship, Gallega, was still trapped at the outpost. The settlement of Santa Maria de Balin was left under the command of Bartholomew Columbus and Diego Mendez. As noted, with all the hostages in their possession, the Spanish figured the settlement was safe. But they would be wrong. Since his escape, Quibian had been rallying his forces. Once Columbus got his three caravels over the sandbar, Quibian decided it was time to attack. The ships would be too far out at sea to provide any kind of aid, and they would not be able to get back over the sandbars without risk of being trapped again. So on April 6th, Quibian and 400 warriors would creep up to the settlement, getting within 50 feet, before launching their attack. The assault on the Spanish was a nasty, vicious melee that lasted three hours. With surprise as their ally, the Indians had the advantage early on. But as we have seen time and time again, 
Once the Spanish could use their swords and firearms, the tide would turn. In the fighting, one Spaniard would be killed and eight others wounded, including Bartholomew Columbus. However, the natives were repulsed. That night, a boat from La Capitana, led by the captain, would row past the settlement, intent on loading some water barrels for the upcoming voyage. Tristan, despite having watched some of the day's fighting from the safety of his boat, ignored the warnings from the settlement and kept going up the river. It was not long before the Indians ambushed the boat, killing Captain Tristan and everyone on board, save for one man, who dove into the water and swam to safety. So, while the Spanish had repelled Quibian and his army, Bartholomew Columbus recognized that the little settlement would not withstand a sustained assault. Everyone wanted to sail off with the rest of the fleet, but the caravel was still trapped, and quite frankly, in horrible condition. There were doubts that Gallego would stay afloat once it got out to sea. Also, it should be noted that the men on shore didn't have any smaller boats, ones that they could row out to the ships and get to safety. This is not something I've mentioned thus far, but over the course of the last six months, the fleet's four ships had gradually lost their small boats, mostly in storms. Columbus had only one remaining amongst his three ships out at sea, but even then he feared that it would not be able to get across the sandbars and to the men trapped on shore. So, unable to escape, the Spanish decided to move to a more defensible location. Bartholomew Columbus selected a spot along the eastern shore of the river near the ocean and proceeded to build a small fort. The Spanish would use whatever they could to construct the fort, barrels from the ship, chests, trees, whatever could be had. They also brought some small artillery pieces from the ship and set them up. For several days, the Indians threatened the Spanish, but the fortified position and their artillery kept them at bay. Now, let's recall that the Spanish had captured some members of Quibian's family as well as some warriors from the village. These prisoners had been kept in the hold of Gallega. Well, one night, they tried to escape. A few would manage to jump off the ship and swim to safety, but most were locked back up in the ship's hold. What happens next is actually pretty shocking. In their despair, the remaining native prisoners would hang themselves in the hold of Gallega. The mass suicide of the natives was, without a doubt, a tragic situation. But for the Spanish, their deaths meant that they no longer had any leverage over Quibian. It was only a matter of time before they were attacked again. Despite all the problems ashore, Columbus was reluctant to abandon his colony. One of his sailors would swim ashore to gather information, and the men on shore begged him to go back to the admiral and plead with him to rescue them. On hearing this news, Columbus would relent, although he was in a dangerous situation. His anchorage provided little safety if a storm hit. He needed to find a way to save the men in the small fortress and do it quickly. The answer would come on April 15th. The weather improved, and the resourceful Diego Mendez built a raft out of two captured Indian canoes. For two days, Mendez ferried small groups of men from the shore over the sandbars and out to the caravels. Anything of value on Gallego was stripped and brought along as well. Barrels and casks were tied to the raft and pulled out to the fleet. When they were done, the fortress was abandoned as was Gallego. Columbus was reportedly thrilled by the actions of Mendez, and promoted him to the captain of the flagship, Santa Maria, since her previous captain, Diego Tristan, had been killed by the natives. The fleet left the coast of Panama on April 16th. There was no passage to Asia, no colony, no gold mine, and the remaining vessels were riddled with shipworms. Any thought of reaching Spain, which was 5,000 miles away, was abandoned. Columbus's only hope was that the fleet could reach Hispaniola. Columbus initially headed east, If the ships went far enough east, at some point they could then catch the northerly winds toward Hispaniola. 
A week into their journey, a second ship, Vizcaina, would be abandoned along the coast of Panama as the shipworms had made her unseaworthy. I have read reports that the ship practically fell apart. It was in such bad shape. By the beginning of May, the crews of the remaining ships were becoming unruly. The ship's pilots believed that they were safe to head directly north, toward Hispaniola. But Columbus insisted that they needed to go further east, along the northern shore of South America, and then turn north. In the end, Columbus relented, and it was a mistake. The Admiral was correct, as the fleet was nearly 1,000 miles further west than the pilots believed. If Columbus had stuck to his plan and moved east along the South American coast, he would have been in much better shape. Instead, the two ships turned north too early. In turning north, you have to understand that the winds and the currents will pull a ship slightly west at the same time, and that is exactly what happened. The fleet not only went west of Hispaniola, they went west of Jamaica. Ultimately, they would sail 700 miles north and slightly west, reaching Cuba on May 13th. During this time, the ship's pumps were worked constantly to try to keep them from sinking. The crew was suffering badly from exhaustion and malnutrition. Storms would keep the fleet from making much headway in May. Columbus himself was in bad shape physically and mentally. He was bordering on delirious, and his men wondered if he was going crazy. The Admiral pushed his ships east along the Cuban coast, but the winds and currents were not cooperating. They were several hundred miles away from Hispaniola, but progress was so slow that Columbus gave up trying. Instead, he ordered his ships south, toward Jamaica. Columbus felt that if they reached Jamaica, the ships could inch along the northern coast and then strike out for Hispaniola, a distance of only about 125 miles. The crossing from Cuba to Jamaica was a desperate affair. The ships were barely seaworthy. It would take them eight days, but on June 25, 1503, the two ships would reach a harbor on the northern shore of Jamaica, which is today known as St. Anne's Bay. The ships were in such awful shape, they were simply ran as far onto the beach as possible to prevent them from sinking in the harbor. In doing so, they would never go to sea again. It was the summer of 1503, and the men of the fleet were stranded on the island of Jamaica. Of the original 140-man crew, 24 were dead, half from sickness and disease, the other half from fighting with the Indians in Panama. Columbus was so dismayed by the situation, he would reportedly say, Quote, I wished I had never set out. End quote. So, I think this is a good point to leave Columbus and his men. They were in a terrible situation. They had no ships, limited supplies, and little hope. Next time, we will conclude our series on Christopher Columbus, joining him on the island and recounting the fate of him and his men. We will also look back a bit at the series and try and get a grasp on the legacy of one of the most famous explorers in history, Christopher Columbus. Thank you for joining us on the Explorers Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed things so far, and we will see you next time. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. 
If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.